Well, good morning. As you find your seats this morning, we are going to continue our study through the Minor Prophets. It's, am- it's kind of amazing. It seems like we started this study just not that long ago, but there's actually just a few more Sundays of this left. So if you could, please take your copy of God's Word, and this morning we are going to be spending our time in the book of Ob- Obadiah. Last week, Moses taught through the book of Amos, so if you're looking for Obadiah, go to where you were last week with Moses in the book of Amos, and just go to the very next book, and you'll find Obadiah. So the book of Obadiah is a very interesting book. It's actually one I have not spent much time studying, and this week has been a has been not only a very interesting week studying this, but it's been very fruitful for me. When I first started going through it, I was reading it, and I was thinking, this is a very, very dark book. It's a very dark book. In fact, it's, I was really kind of struck by this. I've heard the saying many times that the Bible is God's love letter to you. I've heard that many times, and in some ways that is a helpful way of thinking of the Bible. I mean, Scripture is a collection of books that reveals the history of redemption, reveals God's attribute of love, his salvation for sinners. So that is a helpful way of thinking about that. But if you have that viewpoint of, okay, Scripture is God's love letter to me, and then you get to Obadiah, you find out really quickly, Obadiah is not written to you. It is written to Edom, a nation. And the other, the other aspect of that is, the book of Obadiah is not a love letter. In fact, it is the quite opposite of that. Obadiah's message to Edom is to expect wrath from the Lord because of their arrogance and the way they have treated Israel, who is God's chosen people. And there is such a temptation to just kind of gloss over this book, whether it's in your line of just kind of maybe uh, whatever systems, the, whatever system you're going through the Bible as far as systematically trying to read the whole thing. I know many of us have our different ways of doing that. You get to Obadiah and you think, oh, it's just a short book. It's kind of dark. It's not to me. And it's easy just to really just kind of it's easy to be tempted to gloss over it, skim through it, and move to more uplifting parts of Scripture. But as we know, have we been studying through the Minor Prophets, the length of a book does not determine its significance at all. And even Obadiah is the shortest book in the Old Testament. It is very significant. And not just that, but as we know from 2 Timothy 3, 16-17, that all Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God will be adequate, equipped for every good work. And all scripture includes Obadiah. And I fully admit, I've been guilty in the past of just kind of skimming through this, moving on, and not giving it the careful meditation study that it deserves. And I'd have to say, I've been very blessed this week by actually spending time in this short Old Testament book. Obadiah gives a keen insight into the heart of God. Gives a keen insight into the heart of God in his dealings with other nations along with his people. And so as we go through 
this book together this morning, I want to start with just a little bit of background. There is a lot of rich history that leads into this shortest book of the Old Testament. And the background behind Obadiah is actually one of the greatest feuds in all of history. You think of great feuds in the past, you think might think of things like the Hatfield and McCoys, the North and South during the Civil War, maybe even looking back to the Reformation, the feud bet- between Martin Luther and the Pope. You think of things like that that are really interesting parts of history, and none of it comes close to this one. This is a historic feud between Israel and Edom, between two nations that went on for over a thousand years, well, well over a thousand years, and it originated in the womb, believe it or not. This story begins with Isaac, the son of Abraham, a story that many of you are familiar with. And this story begins in Genesis chapter 25, verses 21 through 23. Let me read it for you this morning. Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was barren. And the Lord answered him, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. But the children struggled together within her, and she said, if it is so, why then am I this way? It's just stop there for a second. It's interesting. She's having these twins inside her. They're struggling. They're fighting so much so that she's actually crying out to the Lord like, what is going on here? And let me go move on to your, uh, starting at verse 23. So she, requ- so she inquired of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb. And two peoples will be separated from your body. The one shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. And so many of you know the story, and if you want to be reminded, I would say sometime this week, read through Genesis 25 on and learn more, be reminded of the story of Isaac Isaac, uh, and his sons, Jacob and Esau, grandsons of Abraham. You're talking direct grandsons of Abraham. And you know, and many of you are familiar with the story. Esau and his godlessness, who was, who was the oldest and had the birthright, actually ended up selling his birthright to Jacob for some red stew. He even says that red stuff. He was so hungry, he didn't even care. He's just like, I'll take it, whatever. So he sells his birthright. And then later, Jacob would seal the deal by impersonating Esau to his dying father and would actually steal the blessing of the firstborn, and in all this complicated um, just relationship of two brothers, what the Lord said played out. Jacob became the nation of Israel that would rule over the descendants of Esau, who became the nation of Edom. I, ironically, just a little footnote, the, the name Edom means red, which in many ways would forever point out just his vanity of giving up his birthright for just this red stew, this red stuff, as he called it. And in this historic feud, there's another major factor. You think of feuds, you think of two people going at it, two nations going at it. But another major factor of this feud is Israel and Edom are not the only players in this feud. There's a third member, and that is God. God was, was involved in this feud in a very intimate way because of Israel, who was his chosen people. God himself was involved in this. And the Lord was involved because of his faithful, faithfulness 
to Israel. And Edom had a very dark history of wronging Israel. These, these guys fought for years. I wish I had time to go over all the instances of just their conflict. There was an ancient hostility between these two nations. And because of Edom's hostility towards Israel, because of that, the result was hostility towards them from God. This was a very serious relationship. And there were many ways that Edom wronged Israel throughout history. But the main problem was, is their wrongful interactions with Israel, they're actually flesh and blood. The problem was actually they were wronging God through all that and the way they treated his chosen people. And so like several other prophets, Obadiah gives just a scathing, just rebuking message of judgment to Edom. And the message to Edom is just, the Lord is going to destroy you. It is a message of judgment. Now, when this message was given, we're not quite for sure about this. It's a little bit problematic as far as trying to pin the date on when Obadiah would have wrote this message to Edom. Within the context of his writings, it actually happened sometime around Jerusalem being attacked, Jerusalem being overrun pillaged in some way. Many commentators think it was probably, uh, the message of Obadiah was probably around the time that uh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem was overtaken into Babylonian, Babylonian captivity and completely destroyed in 586. I think this probably is pretty probable, but wherever you find that in history, because there were many times that Jerusalem was attacked, it does not change the message of Obadiah. And for us to this morning, we're going to do several things. First of all, since it is such a short book, we have the privilege of I'm going to read it. We have time to do that. So I'm going to go through the, the book of Obadiah, but I'm going to stop at kind of different, at just kind of natural breaks in the passage and just kind of give some running commentary. And after that, as we've been kind of trending in this study, I will give, we will highlight some significant theological themes that we see in this book and then end with how do we apply this book to us? So if you could, those of you who have your Bibles open up to Obadiah, follow along with me as I read, starting at verse 1. The vision of Obadiah. Thus says the Lord concerning Edom. We have heard a report from the Lord. And an envoy has been sent out among the nations saying, Arise, let us go against her for battle. So the beginning of this, the, this whole message of Obadiah is this formal announcement of the Lord's message of destruction towards Edom. And the Lord reveals that Edom is going to be destroyed through other nations. There is an envoy, a human ambassador that is going and pulling nations together saying, let's go against them and battle. So Edom is in danger of a foreign attack. But it is very clear that the real danger here is actually the Lord, actually Yahweh. It is a sovereign Lord who is the ultimate mover of these nations, who is this threat, coming threat to Edom. So let's continue verses 2 and 4. Follow along with me. And this is what's going to happen to Edom. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You are greatly despised. The arrogance of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the cleft of the rock 
in the loftiness of your dwelling place, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to earth? Though you build high like the eagle, though you set your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. So the Lord, in just these verses, is declaring that he is going to make Edom small, insignificant. And why? Obadiah reveals why. It's because they've become proud. This nation has, has in their pride, completely rejected God, and they have become proud. They are dwelling as if there is no God. They are self-sufficient. And part of this is actually their geological um, location, where they set up shop, if you will. They're, where uh, the nation of uh, Edom dwelled was in an area known as the land of Ser. And the territory was this range of sandstone mountains that was south of the Dead Sea. Once again, it's kind of ironic. They lived in these sandstone mountains that were the color red that reflects their, that reflects their name. And these mountains provided protection in many ways. Foreign adversaries would have had a hard time navigating through them. And as many of you know, first rule of battle is you want the high ground. Edom had it. They had protection in just the very place that they dwelled. And even in their arrogance, they just, in their pride, asked the question, who's going to bring us down? Who's going to destroy us? And the most terrifying answer to that, to that just rhetorical questions that they're saying in their pride, the Lord, who is the Lord of the mountains that they live in, answers that question is in saying, I will bring you down. The mountains that have helped them against foreign threat is not going to protect them against a divine threat. And the Lord is against them. Their arrogance was blinding them to the fact that their true reality was not safety, but it was immediate destruction from the Lord of the very place in which they they lived. And they were blinded by that. So look down with me at verses five, uh, 5 and through 9. And as I read, listen to the description of how Edom is going to be plundered and destroyed. Starting verse 5. If these come to you, if robbers by night, oh, how you will be ruined. Would they not steal only until they'd had enough? If grape gatherers come to you, will they not leave some gleanings? Oh, how Esau will be ransacked and his hidden treasures searched out. All the men allied with you will send you forth through the border, and the men at peace with you will deceive you and overpower you. They who eat your bread will ambush you. There is no understanding in him. So in these verses... The the Lord gives these rhetorical questions, and you sum up the answer to both of them, is these armies that come to them are not going to stop at enough. They are not going to come, get some things, be satisfied. No, they're like thieves who are never, never satisfied. Thieves never stop at enough. People who come plunder your crops never stop at enough. Enough. They are going to take it all. Edom can expect no mercy. There's no mercy. Their treasures are going to be taken away. And not just their treasures, they are going to be taken away. It says, it says these adversaries are going to push them to the border, push them out of, of where they live. And these international allies that they have, this is the worst part, it's their friends that are going to do this. Now, on a world 
scale, nations have allies because it gives you strength. It gives you power. It gives you security. That's why even today nations form alliances before there is protection. Here, God is saying that the alliances that were supposed to give them protection is going to do the opposite. It, their friends are going to be the ones that destroy them. And I'm, I would even assume some of these, they, we don't know who, but I, mean, I would even assume that some of these would be that very allies in which they joined with against Israel. You almost get this picture that almost uh, as somebody who's living in an apartment complex, if you will, and they hate their neighbor, so they get some buddies together, some evil friends, they go burn down their this person's apartment, and while they're rejoicing, next thing you know, the fire's coming towards them. <laughs> I mean, everything, when what they have done, everything they've worked for is going to work against them and actually destroy them. And once again, even though these are nations, human just entities that are doing this, it is actually the Lord that is the mover of all of them. So God was going to use Edom's friends to destroy them. But that's not all. That's not all he was going to destroy. Look down with me at verses 8 and 9. So I continue. Will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy wise men from Edom and understanding from the mountain of Esau? Then your mighty men will be dismayed, O Teman, so that everyone may be cut off from the mountain of Esau by slaughter. So what else is the Lord going to destroy? their wisdom, their understanding. Once again, in the verses prior to this, he says, you're going to be deceived by your allies. Well, this is how there's going to be a lack of leadership. And if you're in a crisis and you do not have resources to turn to, you can't buy your way out of it, or you don't have friends to help you out, your last thing, your last hope is just by your own just intellectual wit to get you out of that, your own cunning wit. Hopefully, you'll just figure something out. Well, that's not going to happen with Edom. They have no, nothing to protect them. They themselves, their wisdom is going to fail them. Their leaders are going to become fools. Their men are going to, their mighty men are going to be dismayed. And the only thing that's going to be left for them is devastation and slaughter. And reading, reading all this of what's going to happen to Edom, it's so easy looking back at historical events, especially when there's been a long period of time from us to when it happened, to become calloused as we read this. It's just, oh, well, that happened, sure, and we move on. But we have to remember that these were real people. <laughs> these are real people. This was a real nation that was full of families, children, real judgment that was coming upon them. And it was going to come upon them in a way that if we were going to watch a documentary and we had actual footage or pictures of it, it would make a shudder. If we were there to see it, I mean, we would not be able to watch it. It would be so devastating. So why? What would cause the Lord to do this? To destroy this people group, this nation, families, children, everything, drive them out of the land and completely destroy their way of life. Yes, it was pride, but there was something added onto that. Look down at verse 10. And he gives the, and Obadiah gives the reason behind all this. Because of the violence to your brother Jacob. This was the reason of this coming judgment to Edom. The problem was that the very people in which they were attacking, afflicting, were not just some other people. They were God's 
people. And once again, that brings God into this picture and causes God to intervene in this conflict in a way that was going to be very devastating for them. And Obadiah gives us a picture of this violence that they afflicted on Israel. Just a small little picture. So follow with me in verses 10 through 14. You will be covered with shame and you will be cut off forever. On the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth and the foreigners entered his gate and cast lots for Jerusalem, you too were as one of them. Do not gloat on your brother's day, the day of his misfortune, and do not rejoice over the sons of Judah in the day of their destruction. Yes, do not boast in the day of their distress. Do not enter in the gate of my people in the day of their disaster. Yes, you do not gloat over their calamity in the day of their disaster. And you do not loot their wealth in the day of their disaster. Do not stand at the fork of the road to cut down their fugitives. Do not imprison their survivors in their day of distress. So whether this was the Babylonian destruction or another time that Israel was attacked by other foreign nations, somehow their own flesh and blood, Edom, was aloof, almost detached in a way that it's just, they let it happen. But it was more than that. There's a sense that they took part in it. They rejoiced in it because Israel was their enemy. They hated them. And here's where we have to stop. And we have to remember, any of the times that Jerusalem was attacked, taken over, especially when it comes to, to Babylon carrying them away, why did that happen? Did it have anything to do with Edom? And the answer is no. The reason why Jerusalem, Judah, was driven out of Jerusalem was because of Judah. It was because of their sins. It was because of their idolatry that, as we've been finding out through the minor prophets, that God was constantly calling them out for, constantly, constantly warning them of judgment, calling them to repentance. It was Judah's fault that this happened, and yet, in the midst of God punishing Judah for their own sins, here's Edom rejoicing. It's like God turns and says, how dare you? (laughs) He is still faithful to his people, to Israel, even after all of that. And he he just strictly warns Edom, do not rejoice in this. Do not take part in any of this. Now, Edom which should really happen during these times. I mean, they had history. Now, they were pagans, they followed other gods, but they should have known that their brother, the nation of Israel, they were the chosen people of God. They had that information. And when they would have seen Jerusalem, you're talking the city of God, taken over, That should have not been something that should have caused them to rejoice. That should have been something that should have terrified them. They should have seen that happen, and they should have looked to themselves and thought, well, if God is punishing his people for their sins, what's going to happen to a godless nation like us? It should have caused fear. It should have caused a response more of them mourning and sackcloth and ashes crying out that God don't do it to us. If you're going to do this, what's going to happen to us, this godless nation? It should have struck fear in them. And also, Obadiah explains in the next two verses, 
this very thing of why it should have struck fear in them. Look down at verse 15 with me. For the day the Lord draws near on all nations, as you have done, it will be done to you. Your dealings will return on your own head. Because you, at, just as you drank on my holy mountain, all the nations will, conti- will drink continually. They will drink and swallow and become as if they have never existed. So there is an event coming that they should have been very, very scared of, and that is the day of the Lord. Of course, this has been a constant theme in our study of the minor prophets. This future event that is coming, as Obadiah says, for all nations, not just Edom, but for all nations. There's a day coming when all nations will be judged, and then they will be judged due to their deeds, due to their sin before God. You get a picture of, he says there will be, they will drink on my holy mountain. All the nations will drink continually. This, this kind of metaphor of drinking is usually judgment, drinking judgment. So there's this picture of they are going to be forced to consume judgment from God in this future event. And as Obadiah says, in this day, all nations will be as if they never existed. This future event that is happening, happening coming. Except... For one nation. Look down at verses 17 through 18 with me. But on Mount Zion, there will be those who escape, and it will be holy. And the house of Jacob will possess their possessions. Then the house of Jacob will be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame. But the house of Esau will be a stubble, and they will set them on fire and consume them, so that there will be no survivor in the house of Esau. For the Lord has spoken. So this future day of judgment for Edom, for these nations, for the nation of Israel, God's people, it's going to be a different day. Once again, as we've been talking about in the study of minor prophets, this day of the Lord, it's not just going to be a time of judgment. It's actually also going to be a time of blessing for those who are faithful to God. And that's what Obadiah points out, he points out here. Esau is going to lose everything. But Jacob will gain what the Lord has promised to him. And Obadiah explains that in the next verses. Look down at verse 19 with me. Then those of the Negev will possess the mountain of Esau, and those of the Shephelah, the Philistine plain, also possess the territory of Ephraim and the territory of Samaria, and Benjamin will possess Gilead. And the exiles of this host of the sons of Israel, who are among the Canaanites as far as Zarephath, and the exiles, of Jer- the exiles of Jerusalem who are in Sepharad will possess the cities of the Negev. The deliverers will ascend Mount Zion to judge the mountain of Esau. And the kingdom will be the Lord's. So a little bit of background, when Judah was carried into exile, Edom actually expanded their territory into the southern part of, into the southern part of Judah. But here, Obadiah prophesies that it's going to be the opposite. Not only is, is Judah, is Israel going to obtain the land that they were promised, but they're going to take Edom's as well. The, mount, the mountains of Seir are going to become part of the nation of Israel. So the question is, when will this happen? 
And that is a con- that is a question that I have seen commentators fight and fight and fight over: is when this happens, or when has it happened, or when will it happen? The answer is both. <laughs> it has both happened. Um, there has been some of this has been fulfilled. First of all, the destruction of Edom has been fulfilled. A few weeks ago, I taught from the book of Malachi, and if you, if you remember, the very first chapter of, of Malachi. Um, Judah is complaining about how does the Lord love them. God responds to them saying, I love you. Look what I did to Edom. By the time of Malachi, Edom was already destroyed. Malachi writes in chapter, um, chapter 1 verse 3, But I hated Esau, and I have made his mountains a desolation and appointed his inheritance for the jackals of the wilderness. So that had actually, in Malachi's day, had been fulfilled of God bringing this judgment to Edom. And even just... Even just the partial regathering of Jews, of Judah, back into the land, they did settle some of these areas that Obadiah is talking about. So that did happen. Now, having said that, we know just through history that they did not keep those territories. In 70 AD, Jerusalem was destroyed again by Rome. They did not keep those territories. And yet... We can trust that God is going to be faithful in keeping his promises. As verse 21 says in Obadiah, the kingdom will be the Lord's. It will happen. Even though at the time of Mount Malachi, there was a partial just repossession of the land, we can trust that one day God is going to keep his promises and Israel once again possess the land when, during the millennial kingdom, under the reign of their true king, the one from the line of David, that is Christ. We can look forward to that happening to where, yes, the kingdom will be the Lord's. And that's the bottom line. If you walk away from verse 21 is the Lord's will will be done. His sovereign reign will happen. The kingdom will be the Lord's. And this day of the Lord that Obadiah prophesies of will be a day in which the wicked are judged and then also the righteous are blessed. That is something that is going to happen. So in light of this, in light of this um, book, shortest book of the Old Testament that I just cover, covered, here's just kind of some significant themes to kind of think about, meditate on this week. First theme is one that has been just kind of a constant theme through our study of the Minor Prophets is the Day of the Lord. You should see that on your worksheet. And the Day of the Lord is used for both a near historical future and also an eschological event that is coming, a future event. It's used for both. And in Obadiah here, it is also used as both. And in verses 1 through 14, God is talking about this near event that's coming. You're talking foreign adversaries coming to destroy them. That's something that is happening. And then you get to verses 15 through 20, and then he's speaking about this far future event that is coming. And within this, within these events of judgment... Something that I know Myrel mentioned in the book of Joel. It's been a theme. They should, when it comes to those events of judgment, those, those events should be looked at. They should be studied. And you should take heed because of the future event that is coming of judgment. As Walt Kaiser explains, 
I find this very helpful the way he says this. The final time will be a climatic and it's just the sum of all the rest. This final judgment will be the final sum of judgment against sinners, against these sinful nations. Which means when you see God doing uh, things throughout history, keeping his word, doing things that he said he would do, that should strike fear and knowing that, guess what? He's going to do everything else that he said he would do, including this final day of judgment. So these historical events should be a call of repentance, knowing what is coming, this future this future event of judgment. And once again, Edom should have repented just looking and seeing what happened to Israel. They should have looked at that knowing that if God will do that, what else is he going to do? And once again, Yahweh will keep his word. His promises will come to pass and we can trust that. Second theological theme to consider is the Lord's sovereignty over the nations. It is... It is striking in this, in this book that it's not explicitly spelled out how, it all, how all this works, but you have nations forming alliances, betraying one another, going to battle with one another, and within all this, it seems chaotic, but the Lord is the mover in all of this. He is the one who is sovereign over all these relationships. Edom was betrayed by their close allies, that was God-ordained. Jerusalem was overrun and taken into exile. That was God-ordained. And as Proverbs 21.1 says, the king's heart is like channels of water in the hands of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. So God's sovereignty is on full display in the book of Obadiah. Nothing is out of his control. It seems like just this chaotic global mess, and yet it is a Lord that is the mover in all these situations. And just, just to pause for a moment, as far as us, when we listen to the news and we see just this chaos that is being reported, and it does, it, it grieves us seeing people sin and people destroyed, national disasters. It does grieve us. However, we can always stop and take comfort knowing that God is good and he is in control of everything, including the nations back then and the nations now. Our God is good and he is sovereign, and we can take comfort in that. And this leads to our next theological theme. The Lord's faithfulness to his people. The event in the book of Obadiah centers around Jerusalem being attacked by foreign nations, being wronged by Edom. Edom took part in this, but we have to remember, Judah was overrun, Israel was overrun, the northern and southern kingdoms were taken into captivity because of their own sin. They were unfaithful to God. And that is why that happened. And yet, within all of that, even in the book of Obadiah, we see God's faithfulness to his people. Even though he had been dealt with in unfaithfulness, he was still faithful to the promises that he made to these people. And not only does God judge Edom because of their treatment of God's people, but he also promises future restoration for his people. He's not done with them. In all this darkness, <laughs> this is a dark book, and this dark book of judgment against Edom 
behind all of that is this full bright display of God's goodness and his faithfulness to his people. And that's why he even reacts to their enemies the way he did. The message of destruction of Edom would have been comforting to Israel, to, to Judah. It would have been a comfort to them knowing that God still is on their side and he is a God of justice who is going to punish their enemies. And the Lord is faithful to his people. And with that in mind, in light of this book, in light of these theological themes, here's some takeaways. And once again, this is a book not to us. <laughs> in fact, it's not even a book to God's people. It is a book to a foreign enemy of God's people. And yet, all scripture is profitable. And this, the book of Obadiah is profitable for us. So here's some takeaways to consider, to meditate on this week. First of all, we must trust God's justice. Can, can you imagine as Judah, Israel, was being mistreated by foreign enemies, how they must have felt of, why is God allowing this to happen? Why are they getting away with this? We are God's people. They are attacking us. Why is this happening? And yet, the whole time, their foreign adversaries got away with nothing. They, the whole time, God did it in his own own timing, his justice prevailed. And as Christians, we're not going to make it through this world without somehow being afflicted by sinners around us. That is part of living in this world. And a moment's being wrong is so tempting to react to hostility and further hostility. And yet we can take comfort in knowing that God's going to make everything right. Romans twelve nineteen, Paul writes, never take your own revenge, beloved. But leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. So instead of us being consumed by just these events, these, this sin that sometimes afflicts us throughout our life, be, instead of acting in hostility, becoming bitter for the way that we're being dealt with, knowing that we're sinners too, we should be able to instead respond with forgiveness and show the same grace and mercy that God has shown to us, knowing we actually know God. And knowing how he has dealt with us, we should be able to respond differently than this hostile world that we live in. We should be different in that. And the bottom line is we can trust God to make things right. He is a God of justice, and he will be the one to fix everything, and he will be the one to judge and make things right. Our next takeaway, we must repent of prideful arrogance. And this one's huge. It's, it's really interesting how just in this book, God mentions their treatment of Israel, but before he even gets to that, he just talks about their pride and arrogance. And as we know as Christians that have scripture, God hates pride. And because of Edom's pride, they had a great fall. And of course, we know that pride becomes, comes before the fall. And the danger with pride is that, and it's something that we are all in danger of because of our sinful hearts, our pride deceives us. We lose perception of reality. We end up giving a high view of ourselves and a low view of God. Both cannot happen at the same time, which brings the result of God bringing us low. 
He will not tolerate us lifting ourselves up and keeping him down. He is a God who hates pride, and he will judge that. And pride leaves before the fall. Obadiah is a vivid description of this. Just how he even describes them, even physically, where they live. God will bring them down. And we should take that, and we should take heed that we do not want to have that same pride and that same arrogance because God hates it, and he will deal with it. That is something that we should take heed from this book, that we do not follow that same path, that we are those who are humble and repentant, and that we have the right relationship with God. That way that we are not, we are not punished for our sinful pride. We need to repent. Another takeaway. We must trust God's faithfulness. Israel was unfaithful to Yahweh, and yet... God remained faithful to them. Now, that is not something to say, well, you know, then it doesn't matter. No, it matters because God's faithfulness should drive us to respond in being faithful to him. Deuteronomy 7, 9, um, Moses records this. Know therefore that the Lord your God, he is God, the faithful God who keeps his covenant and his loving kindness to the thousandth generation and and with those who love him and keep his commandments. God blesses those who are faithful to him. And when we see his faithfulness, that should cause us to be faithful to him because of who he is. Now, having said that, we stumble, right? We fall. We sin. But in those times, there should be a quick repentance turning back to him. First John writes in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Knowing God's attribute of faithfulness should drive us constantly in repentance, staying close to him. We sh- it should cause us to respond in faithfulness. So that is something that we need to constantly be thinking about, that our God is faithful to us. We need to return and live a life in faithfulness to him. And connected with that, connected with that, our uh, takeaway number four, we must live faithfully with anticipation of God's future promises. God has promised a day that is coming where he will judge the wicked, but he will bless the righteous. And knowing the future should affect our present lives right now. It should shape us. In many ways, we always talk about how it is the past that shapes us. As Christians, it is the future that shapes our present lives now. And we need to always live it with anticipation of God fulfilling these future promises that he's promised to not only the wicked, where he's going to punish them, but also the righteous in which he is going to bless them. It is the future that shapes us. And of course, as Christians, we have even a, we even have more knowledge of the future than Obadiah did at his time. We know that our future as Christians, we're waiting on our Savior, who is going to come back, and he is going to make everything right. And now while we wait for him, we want to be found faithful. John writes in 1 John 2, 2 uh, 28, now little children, Abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him at the shame, at, shrink away from him in shame at his coming. What a tragedy would it be for us to 
all sudden Christ comes back and we shrivel back in shame because of our unrighteousness, that is something that every day we should live our life looking to the future, looking to our coming Savior, and be ready for him to come back for us. We live in a dark world. This book of Obadiah is a picture of a dark world. And yet, we do not want to be those who imitate that darkness. We want to be those who are a light in a dark world. And we need to live with anticipation of our coming Savior who is one day going to come back and he is going to make things right. And bottom line is, our God is faithful and he is going to keep his promises and we can always trust him.